Okay, so we're reading Daniel chapter 4 this week. Um, It's quite long, so if you have a Bible, whether that be on your phone or um, hard copy, then if you want to follow along, we're reading from the ESV version. Nebuchadnezzar praises God. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream, that the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head, as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with the band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream of the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. 
And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from the heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my law of the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules." Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Whilst the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the world was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were bird's claws. At the end end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counsellors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Well, thank you to Natalie for bringing our reading this morning. The problem with long passages is you could speak for a long time, and before you know it, you've spoken longer than you meant to. And so I just want to pluck a couple of themes this morning, and we don't have the time to go into all the detail that's there. But perhaps as you were listening to that, you were thinking, Crumbs, this doesn't, this sounds a bit unusual. Uh, Daniel keeps referring to himself in the first person as Nebuchadnezzar, and that's because Daniel's co-opted this from Nebuchadnezzar's writing. Uh, or Neb, as I've been calling him in my sermon prep this week, which is uh, perhaps suitably irreverent for somebody who struggled with pride, who knows? (laughs) Uh, And so as Neb's put this together, he's put together this great, great long story, basically sharing testimony. 
to who God is and why that matters and talking about the life events that he's experienced. And you might think, Crumbs, how is this guy struggling with this stuff again? Uh, and I, I think we've addressed this previously, you know, the, the people of God again and again struggle, God intervenes, the people forget that God intervened and then they struggle again. I think that's true of the church today. That's certainly true in Neb's life. He's uh, having another tough time. And I just want to dive into this story and draw out a couple of key themes for us. And those three three themes this morning, because I went to a Baptist seminary, are pride, the authority of God, and humility and restoration. For those of you who really like sermon titles, uh, here is one for you. God first, parentheses, the perils of being a slow learner. You know, this morning I was trying to think, Crumbs, how do I share this story? What are the key points to share? And, uh, well, the first thing that strikes you when you read this passage is the issue of pride, isn't it? I mean, in many ways, pride is the thing that Neb struggles with time and again. In fact, we've been hearing Neb's story over the last couple of weeks. And God has to keep intervening in this guy's life. Dear me, when he has these dreams, he must be terrified at the onset, I was thinking, because Every time he has one of these dreams, it's, it's so terrible for him. They're not just nightmares, they're revelations from God. It could put you off going to sleep. And so, here in Neb's second dream, we, we have this passage, this very humble introduction. And you see, the thing is, he's written it some years, it would seem, after the events, But it's not that long after the end of the story that he's written these things, because we find out that he dies fairly promptly after he's restored as the king. In some ways, that might be a blessing. Take him before he can screw it up again, and we've got a a third dream. But I think the thing that's key in understanding pride is this one thought. Anytime we place ourselves before God, we are on the road to committing the sin of pride. Anytime we put ourselves first. So this morning's sermon title is God First. We've talked previously about the importance of remembering that we serve an audience of one. Now that isn't just good pop Christian theology. I think that's a very important heavenly principle that our lives need to be based upon. If you don't remember that it's God first and then everything else after that, if you don't remember it's God first and everything else after that, the opportunity for pride to creep in is already there. In fact, if you can remember this idea that we're learning from this book about putting God first, 
from this morning's story, actually, you can avoid all sorts of other sins. You know, when we put ourselves first, that becomes pride. When we put something, a thing first, that becomes idolatry. If we perhaps look at somebody else and we think, oh, they're a bit special and we're not honoring God first and we're looking at somebody that way that we shouldn't be, well, then the sin of lust is coming forward. So we look at somebody else's stuff and we think, oh, that's really nice. And now we're coveting. I think in the church, sometimes we're a bit wary of talking about sins because we've had a bit of a PR issue over the last decade or, or four, that people know what we're against, but they don't know what we're for. And so the importance of God first, the importance of coming under the power of the Holy Spirit as believers in Christ Jesus, and choosing to point people back to Christ, and remember how Christ dealt with people, because we've got so many fantastic examples. This is a great example of what not to do, but in Christ we've got the perfect example of what to do. Jesus met people time and again and said, your sins are forgiven, before he then dealt with the physical ailment that they were troubled by. But he didn't speak down to them, he didn't speak unkindly to them, but he did deal with their sin, he acknowledged their sin and helped them move forwards. And I think we run the risk of thinking we know best sometimes in the church. Parts of the church have been saying love wins and yes, loving people is a great way to win them to Christ. But loving them but not loving them enough to help them understand where they're going wrong isn't love at all. It makes grace hollow. And so sometimes, even in trying to win someone to Christ, we commit the sin of pride thinking that we can love them more than God can. How messed up is that? <laughs> it's pride when we place ourselves before the Lord and we do anything other than kneel. I love that Neb's such a slow learner. He's a wonderful sermon illustration. Once again, he calls all of his wise men to interpret his dream. The guy that got it right last time would be the guy I'd be wanting to phone, wouldn't you? That's just good business sense. Who do you phone? Do you phone the guy who did a great job last time? Or do you call all of the dodgy trades people that couldn't get it right the first time? If you've got a leak in your house, who are you phoning? Are you phoning the plumber that caused it? Or are you phoning the guy that fixed it? But no, Neb is a slow learner. Neb is full of pride. Neb perhaps even is afraid of God at this point. And so Neb calls for all of his wise men, his magicians, his astrologers, his, his everybody else that he can possibly ask before the guy that's really good with dreams. Maybe it's because he liked to hear what he liked to hear and he knew these guys were going to tell him that but when they couldn't offer him the answer that he needed he remembered the authority of God and God's man 
And I think this story is a fantastic illustration of God's authority. Here we have the most powerful man of his day, ruling the largest kingdom. I mean, if you're wondering what this kind of power is like, can you imagine trying to get planning permission in this day and age for a 10-story gold statue? You've got to have some clout to be able to get a thing like that through, if nothing else. But more than that, I think this story reminds us that here is this man with such incredible power who is conquering kingdoms in his name, who is losing sight of the fact that God sits over every king, every prime minister, every world leader, every leader in the earthly and worldly sense. And he's about to be humbled powerfully. And so I think it's a wonderful word of caution to any one of us who ever has any measure of power in any sphere of life, never to take away from God's glory. I read somewhere that God resists the proud. I don't know that any of us want to be resisted by God. It's quite the opposite from being blessed, right? And Neb has this account, this story written up that Daniel co-ops and incorporates within to his writings here. And as you read this thing, for me, there's a bit of a dissonance because I can't quite believe that this guy who's had this version written down is the same guy that was building 18 or so, maybe more years ago, great big golden idols. Clearly he's been humbled. Perhaps you, like me, are struck by the harshness of God in this story. You know, we like to present God as a a smile and a hug so often, don't we? You know, we as the church, I think, need to remember that God hasn't had a personality change. God's pretty consistent. And sometimes there are things in the Bible that we see and they're challenging to us because we think, is this really God? In fact, sometimes we can do this thing where we want to divorce the Old and New Testament And we want to ignore who God was in the Old Testament because he looks so much more like a hug and a smile in the New Testament. And as I was reading this, you know, the harshness of making Neb like a beast, afflicting him in the way that he does, making his life so hard. You know, it it doesn't tally with so much of the theology I hear preached today about how God only has plans for our good. God's best is for you. He'll never give you more than you can handle. All of these things about 
how God is just going to take away your burdens, or, or worse still, I don't know if you've ever heard someone trying to lead somebody to Christ, and they talk as though you're never going to have a bad day in your life ever again, and if that was the deal, who wouldn't be a Christian, right? You can't afford not to be a Christian, it's, <laughs> it's madness. I heard a story of someone who gave their life to Christ, and they questioned whether it had worked properly, they they went back and they found the person that had prayed with them because they thought probably it hadn't gone right because that same week they had a really tough week and they cried themselves to sleep two or three nights that week. And they thought, well, maybe, maybe this didn't work. Am I really a Christian? I, I thought he was going to wipe the tear from my eye. I was never going to feel sad or anxious or worried ever again. And You know, sometimes... Even in church, I hear parents praying for their kids. Lord God, just bless them and take away all of the trials of their life. Make them happy. Why do we keep praying for happiness? What is that about? When the word of God says that suffering produces faith. We're praying to be a faithless people. So yes, the account here might be deeply challenging. Yes, we might read it and think, wow, God was, God switched to decaf. God had a bad morning, got out of the wrong side of the bed. I don't know what. But actually, what God lets Neb experience is the making of him. Why are we so afraid of suffering? You know, it's not this life that we're promised will be empty of suffering. It's eternity with God that we're promised. And so we might have a tough time here on earth, but the best is yet to come is more than just a way to sell T-shirts, more than a slogan for us to sing at conferences and in cathedrals. It's the truth. Why are we afraid of death when the one that we serve has already conquered death? And you see, what happens here is the moment Neb changes his heart direction, the moment he turns towards humility, the moment he has this moment of repentance, God begins restoring him immediately. And the same is true for us today. In fact, it's all the more powerful because when we turn in humility and repentance, when we turn to Christ, we're not just forgiven and restored, but we're adopted into the family of God. Our counsellors don't just come back. The counsellor, the Holy Spirit, comes and makes a home in our hearts. What could be a better counsellor than God himself. And you see, the thing is, restoration has always been God's heart. God is a God of restoration. God is a God of hope. God's plan for our lives is better than our plan. 
And so I think we have to ask ourselves, what are we here for? Because here's a guy who has it all. You know, if we fast forwarded a couple of thousand years, I'm sure he would have had the newest iPhone, a Ferrari or 16, a couple of Bentleys, a huge mansion. I mean, a palace has got to be fairly nice, right? Fairly nice? What do we reckon? Fairly nice? A few staff? I mean, even when you hear the list of wise men he calls as his counsellors, we get this great long list of people. I mean, this guy isn't just royalty. He's, he's the king of all he surveys. So often we put things up in our own lives, in our own worlds. We start to see things incorrectly. Whether it's the stuff whether it's ourselves, it doesn't matter. We need a perception shift. We need to see things through the eyes of Christ. We need to see things God's way. And if we don't come to him in faith, in repentance, in humility, then why are we surprised that his work of restoration hasn't begun? And one of the confusing things about putting our faith in God is that we know that when we do that, we're fully saved. But we also know, we also know that there's this now and not yet. This holy tension that we're working out our salvation. The word of God says that we should work it out with fear and trembling. Another part of the Bible says to fear the fear of God is the beginning of understanding. You see, it's not that God's had a personality shift. It's that we need to. It's that we need to be able to write accounts of our lives just as Neb has written one of his that gives God all the glory. Because restoration has always been God's heart. And you know what? Restoration looks different for every single one of us because we're all dealing with different stuff. The theme's the same, but the story's different. And that's because God isn't a one-size-fits-all kind of guy. He hasn't got some perfect Christian cookie cutter that he wants to put over your life and stamp down hard on. You know, I used to get terribly confused as a, a younger Christian when people used to pray things like, he must increase, I must decrease. I used to think, crumbs, we're all just going to turn into the same kind of vanilla blob. And I don't want to be the, the chino-wearing, blobby shape Christian that I perceived that must mean that we all become. In America, they call chinos khakis, and it all seems a bit khaki to me. <laughs> it just seems, it just seemed wrong. But in reality, that isn't what happens. It's not that you turn into some generic Christian shape where we all look exactly the same, sound the same, behave the same, do the same. 
It's that we're being conformed into the likeness of Christ. But the things that make us us, the individual parts of us that are who God made us to be, minus sin, is who we're becoming. You know, Neb's story is exciting. The story here is exciting because he keeps getting it so badly wrong. But it becomes the most exciting right at the end. And it's not because he stopped being King Nebuchadnezzar, but it's that he's recognized King Jesus. And actually, even in the writing of this story, there is none of the pomp. There's none of the grandeur that we had got used to from Neb's wayward swagger. And that isn't because he's become less himself, but it's because he's become more fully God's. I think Neb, like us, struggled with sometimes enjoying his sin. I think he was enjoying his sin, he was enjoying his sin, and he was enjoying his sin until it all went horribly wrong. Which is always the way with sin. We pray so often that we would be happy that God would take away our problems, the things that afflict us. When actually we need to be praying for a greater revelation of who God is, to walk more closely with him, so that God doesn't have to use our sin to get our attention. To use our sin and let us suffer so that he can be fully God. And you know, the word of God says, God can turn all things to good for those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. No, so no bad thing can do anything other than glorify God, so long as we're called according to his purposes. But are we called according to his purposes? That's what Neb's life is illustrating time and again. He keeps thinking it's more about him than it is. And there is nothing worse than being the star of the story. Because in our Christian faith, in our Christian understanding, our Christian worldview, the star of the story gets crucified. You don't want to be Jesus in your life. You don't want to be the author and perfecter of your faith. You want to follow the author and perfecter of the faith. And so we humble ourselves before God. And in my notes here, I've literally written ASAP. <laughs> humble yourselves before God as soon as possible. Because there can be only one Lord of your life. There can be only one thing that you let define you. You know, the word of God says... You can't have two masters, and it's talking about the love of God and the love of money. You can only have one master. In our own lives, you can only have one master. You can't be 
a bit in control and God be a bit in control. There's no bargaining here. There's no bartering. You can't be in charge Tuesday through Thursday and say that you've given your life fully to Christ. And so for those of us here in the room this morning, those of us watching online, perhaps you gave your life to Christ a long time ago. And perhaps it's time you did it again. Perhaps you've not been a Christian very long. Perhaps you're not even a Christian. Perhaps you've never given your life to Christ. We've talked before about these come to Jesus moments, these opportunities to let God be God. And I think actually every time you open your eyes, you've got an opportunity to let God be God. Because when we humble ourselves, God elevates us. But when we elevate ourselves, God humbles us. And so we have to choose deliberately to remove pride from our lives by choosing the way of humility. Because in doing so, we choose the way of Christ. We have to choose to recognize the authority of God, the power of God, the greatness of God, because it's only when we recognize the greatness of God that we have the opportunity to walk in the restoration of God. And whether we learn that for ourselves slowly and painfully, or whether we learn that through Neb's life and writings. And you can learn things one of two ways. I don't know if you've learned this in life yet. You can learn it the slow way or the fast way. You can look at somebody else's mistake and learn from that. Or you can go through something yourself. I know what I'd prefer. <laughs> Can I pray with you? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you that our weakness sees your strength increase that we magnify your glory through our shortcomings. We thank you that all your ways are good. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit this Pentecost Sunday. Lord, that unlike Nebuchadnezzar, we're not trusting in worldly wisdom, but that our counselor isn't just God's man, but is God himself alive and at work in our hearts. And that as we invite you more and more, not just to be present in our lives, but to be the king of all that we hold dear, to be God. We thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. And we thank you that when we recognize your sovereignty, your power, your goodness, Lord, we thank you that as we recognize more fully who you are,
Lord, we thank you that in those moments, as we humble ourselves, that you draw us up, that you call us to yourself. Lord, we don't want to glorify ourselves, we want to glorify you. We don't want to learn this the hard way, the slow way. We want to choose Jesus more and more each day. Amen.